What's up, Batty Bees? I'm Brianna, mom, wife, serial entrepreneur, and host of the Badass Basic Bitch podcast. Each week, I sit down with a seemingly ordinary woman who's doing extraordinary things, and I get to share her story with you. So let's go. Buckle up as we're going to get real and dive into the shit nobody talks about. Welcome to the Batty Bee Club. Sinking funds are an account that I think are so important and helpful. But to open one, I'm a fan of having a high yield savings account or an online savings account. And you could read about it for like months. So I recommend setting a timer, right? 30 minutes. Here's what my favorite experts are saying. Okay, I'm going to go ahead and open it. So really focusing on educated action, but staying away from the analysis paralysis. Welcome back to another episode of Badass Basic Bitch. On today's episode, we have the founder and CEO of Fiscal Femme, Ashley Feinstein Gertzley. She's an author, entrepreneur, and feminist who is on a mission to end inequality through financial well being. And today, we're going to be talking about financial adulting and identifying and ending inequality in finance. Ashley, thank you for being with us today. Of course. Thank you so much for having me. And it's a big topic today. Yeah. So before we dive in, why don't you tell our listeners a short summary of what it is you do and your background? Sure. So I would say I'm a personal finance educator and coach. I do it all with a feminist angle and a place of no judgment or shame. We need a lot more of that in the personal finance space. We have a ton of free content. And then also I have some books. My latest is Financial Dolting and have some courses on the site. My background, it's interesting because my background sounds like I would know a lot about money and personal finance, but I didn't. And that's why I do what I do. I studied finance in college and then worked in finance and still knew nothing about my own money. And there was my first job, I was an investment banker and I had a great salary, but just not a lot of time to spend any money, do anything. I ate most meals at my desk and worked pretty late. And so when I switched jobs to a job with a better lifestyle, I started making up for lost time. And when I switched jobs, I did take a pay cut. So I was just bleeding money. I was going out for drinks with friends I hadn't seen, going in workshops, classes, events, concerts. And I there was this feeling that things weren't really going super well with my finances. But it was when I looked at my bank account and saw that my savings, the money, I I quit the day after I got my bonus in banking and it was almost all gone. And that's when I realized, oh, I have to figure this out. And when I looked to learn about it, I found, this was back in like 2010, 2011, it was a lot of male, older, white personal finance experts. And some were great, but also, but a lot of them I thought made the content boring, daunting. The examples didn't really apply to me. There was a lot of shame and judgment. And at the time, as I was figuring it out myself, I was working with a coach. It was when life coaching started to become more popular. And I was terrified of having a voice on the internet and sharing. And so she challenged me to start a blog, which I named The Fiscal Femme, where I shared about my own money journey. And that's really where the company began. 
That's awesome. And I can relate. So I was in an accident when I was younger, when I was four, I was in a really bad accident. And um, long story short, there was like a little bit of a court case and I got awarded like a small sum of money. And when I graduated college, I think when I graduated, yeah, when I graduated college, the money, I got the money and it was like, you know, nothing crazy, like 20, 25K. And I remember sitting down with my dad who tried to explain like the stock market to me. And I just remember being like, I have no interest in this. This is the most boring thing I have ever heard. I have no idea what you're talking about. Please stop talking. And I can relate because it's like, it's so dry. It's so boring. But It wasn't really until I got in like my mid-20s and I moved to California and I started learning about money that I was like, wait, the stock market is actually really fascinating and interesting. And I just remember that conversation with my dad of being like, "You, he could not have made it more dry and more boring to teach me. And that's how people are typically, that's their first interaction is like, a very dry, boring, here's how finances work. And you're just like, I don't care. <laughs> right. Jargon. I almost imagine like the Charlie Brown teacher. Rah, 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 talking at you. Yes. That's how I felt. I just kept looking at the clock being like, how long do you think he has to talk for before he's convinced that I understand what he's saying? <laughs> <laughs> so we can end it's this amazing. conversation. So, real. <laughs> so I love that you make it a little bit more relatable and interesting. And I really wish that colleges had have like mandatory classes, like, okay, economics 101, and you're learning the stupid like curves and all that stuff. Yeah, I get it. Okay, cool. But like, what about like personal economics 101? where we're learning about our money and how we should invest and how we should take care of it. So you're sort of providing that like class for for people, especially women. I love that. Right. And I it's becoming, I think, more popular in the younger grades, but I majored in finance and there was not a finance class on personal finance for credit in my major. It was only about corporate economics like you're talking about and your jargon comment about like the dryness is so real. And I think there's a lot of glazing over that happens and for good reason. And, and it keeps a lot of people from learning about it. And so I do, you'll notice as we talk, I've recreated a lot of the language to be more fun. And I think actually more applicable to what it actually means. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. We we're doing something like that for our kids now where they do chores and then they get, a salary, and then they they have the option of putting that money into like an investment with us where we're giving return interest and we teach them on the interest because I'm like, my parents never taught me any of that. I never learned any of that. And like, okay, I understand my four-year-old probably doesn't care, but at least she's being exposed to it. And then this way, there's that natural interest of it, the subject when she gets older, hopefully. <laughs> But we just don't yes. teach our children this. Like, you know, it's it's not uh, it's not as common. So it's a huge gift, I think, to teach them to talk about it. We do 
I love the idea of the interest. We right now do tokens um, because we found that cash is so is challenging because our son gives us cash and then we're like, okay, what do we do with the cash versus a token equals a dollar so we can order it online. I like that. Um, But he has to think about what he really wants and he's earning it. And um, so I do think as like the talk where nothing is applicable to making it part of your everyday life and talking about the prices and how it can grow. I think the growing conversation of the stock market and seeing what can happen can really change like what could that $25,000 that you had be now? You know, that's exciting. Right. And I wish someone said that to me because, you know, when I got my little lump sum of money, I ended up I mean, I used it for a good cause. It paid for my master's program, part of my master's program. My college was free, but I needed to pay for master's. So I felt like that was a good investment, but I could have I could have spent it on a car or like something silly, right? Like just whatever. But part of me wishes I took half of that and bought actual stock and then sat on it. And I was like, gosh, if I would have bought Google stock or even Microsoft or just something that I knew was going to go well, but I just didn't. I didn't know that at the time of like 22, that that was that was something that could have been important. So you talk about financial adulting. What is a financial adult? Yes. Yeah, so a financial adult, and I think there's a misconception that a financial adult knows everything about money and never makes mistakes. And the good news is that's not the case. And I think the concept of adulting is kind of like this taking care of yourself, doing the things that you know are good for you, even though sometimes you might not want to do them. That's how I view adulting, but it's really like the self-care adult thing. And financial adulting is like that. It's it's a, a journey. For me, there's four kind of components of it. It's taking small, consistent steps in our financial lives. So it doesn't have to be this overnight transformation where like a New Year's resolution where we're a new person the next day, that's not sustainable and it's not as successful, honestly. And then, so taking these small steps over time leads to big results, knowing where your money is going, what's happening with it, which sounds very simple, but it's very profound given all the things that are happening with our money these days and just being aware and clear of what's coming in, what's going out. Financial adults have a plan that they feel I would say confident in their goals, but that doesn't mean that they know exactly to the cent on everything. It's just generally, I feel good about the amounts I'm putting in to different goals and I'm checking in on them. And then finally, it's understanding the areas that we might have privilege or maybe working from a place of oppression so that we can either help close the gaps or just understand that we're not starting from the same place and have some compassion and and not compare ourselves to others. Mm, got it. Okay. And what uh, what are some reasons why people, like working against people, becoming these financial adults? Oh, we have a lot. <laughs> <laughs> One we talked about already is that we don't learn about this. So as adults, we deal with money almost every single day, yet we don't learn about it. And I think there's a lot of reasons. There's like, it's incredible, even though the, and it's funny because even when our parents do talk about it, right, there's like this, It's not getting through. A lot of parents don't ever talk about it. And a lot of parents don't, a lot of people like are having financial first in their family. If they're the first to go to college, the first to get a 401k, like it's not information that their parents will even know. So we don't learn about it. 
we deal with it all the time. It's not usually socially acceptable to talk about, and I'm hoping this is changing, but you might have like a memory where you brought up something about money and you were shut down by a parent or a teacher. Like, no, we don't talk about that. And we internalize that and and decide, oh, money's bad, dirty. We don't talk about it. Um, It's also really hard to know where to go for help. There's a stat that I think is really compelling that 2% of people trust financial professionals. And that makes it difficult to know where to turn. And I think I experienced this when I was looking for information is a lot of the people providing information are making money on selling us things. So there's this conflict of interest that makes us inherently not trust them and to feel, and also that that part of it being so complicated making it so complicated we don't understand has us feel like, oh, so now I don't even understand what these people are recommending and making money off. So money's really tied to emotion. We it's it's not only something that we believe will improve our happiness, and in a lot of cases it does, but it's it gives us a lot of promise for having and experiencing the things we want in life. It also technology has made it really hard to know what's happening with our money. If we think about how we order with one click now, or you can hop in and out of a a shared car without even paying. So it's made it, technology has been great for many, many things, but as far as keeping track of our money, it is challenging. Yeah. And the impulse buying, right? Like, right. So I've been having a practice every month, me and my husband just reflect on our um, expenses and what we are um, spending because although I am fortunate to live below my means or what is that called? Is that right? Is that <laughs> live below yes, my that's means? that's what I would say. Um, still, I, sometimes that makes it really easy to have all these little tiny things add up and then you just don't realize it. Um, and so we are consciously saving money because we want to do an um, an expansion on our house. And I was like, I don't want to just take it from our savings and like our investments. So what I want to do is I want us to save from our salaries. But in order to do that, we need to be aware of how much we're spending. And the biggest thing that we recognized is that all these little things add up to be big dollars because it is so easy for the one click pay, one buy now Amazon, Venmo, Instagram shopping, whatever. There's all these little things. And so although technology has made it easier to purchase diapers, uh, it's also made it easier to purchase all of these other things that you don't necessarily need. And you just impulse buy and they add up. They really do. And I think you know, there's the parts of saving, there's earning more and there's spending less. And I think, yes, earning more makes things easier and it's great to earn more. And the more we earn, wonderful. But without the financial habits of saving or looking at our spending, it is so easy to fill that amount up and continue not to save. And I did that over and over again. Like, I'll finally save when I get that next raise. And Next thing you know, my expenses are taking it up because it's just so easy to do. But the the practice you talked about of looking at your expenses each month, I call those money parties. And I think they're honestly one of the most important financial habits we can keep. And they're really applicable to everyone. It doesn't matter what your goals are. It's like carving out the time because we're all we have a lot going on. If you don't set a time in the calendar, it's not going to happen. 
to take the time to look at those expenses, look at your goals, cancel that subscription you've been meaning to, like setting time for that. And I call it a party for a reason because we can make it fun. We can have it be something that we look forward to by having our favorite beverage or rewarding ourselves. I have a a money party playlist that's all like songs about money to pump me up about my money. And um, so I do think we can create that ritual in a way that makes us look forward to it too. That's really funny. I don't know that me and my husband view this as a party, but (laughs) maybe we (laughs) could make it one next time, next month, be like, here's what we're going to do. But that's funny. But yeah, I do. I do think that's really important. And I think that for women, I I talked about this on another episode with Tori Dunlap, who is like um, her first 100 K and it's really fascinating that, you know, women feel like it's overwhelming, it's too confusing. And, you know, her approach was that it's made like that on purpose. It's made to be confusing for you because they, because she believes that the patriarchy like wants you to depend on them, wants you to rely on them. And, you know, I, I do, I do think that there's some truth to that because, at the end of the day, it's really not that difficult. Like it's actually pretty easy to do investing and budgeting and educating yourself. And in my previous marriage, my ex, you know, made it seem like it was so complicated. And I was like, well, I don't have time. I'm doing all these other things. Like I just don't even want to learn, just take care of it. And then after I got divorced and I was put in front of, now I'm responsible for all the finances and I was doing it and I was just like, wait a second, this isn't that, this isn't hard. This is easy. Like I totally got ripped off on responsibilities because it was really easy. And I think, you know, it's, it's, it's just seemingly difficult on purpose. And so I love that you're breaking it down to be easier for women. So, okay. So besides going on to my rants about that, how do women identify what barriers to financial success exist for them? Like on an individual level, like how do women break down these barriers? Yeah. And so I agree with what you said. And I think it's interesting because I do work with a lot of couples and, or I have in the past right now, I'm not working with any people one-on-one, but in the past they come to the meeting. One has that, this, the tip, if it's a heterosexual couple, the woman will often say like, oh, I don't know a lot about this. The man will be more confident, but actually not know much more at all about this. And I think that's one of the dangers of, and you're right, like when you break it down and when you cut away the noise, and there's so much noise, right? There's a ton of experts saying different things. There's entire channels that just talk about investments all day, but you don't need to know that, right? So you can invest in funds over the long term, like all of this is noise, but it's 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 part of it, right? So I think that understanding that we can figure it out and that it doesn't have to be complicated. The math, like you mentioned, you know, it's in a budget is addition and subtraction. I'm not great at math in my head. I use a spreadsheet, does it all for you, um, has us first of all, learn ourselves, but then it keeps us from leaning on others who might not know any more than us, might be making mistakes with our money. Because even if we do hire someone or work with a professional or lean on our partner to do more, we want to understand what's happening with our money. So I 100% agree with that. And I think 
as far as where to find the barriers and break them down. Um, in my latest book, in Financial Adulting, I interviewed 25 like experts of all different areas and backgrounds. And what I found, it was pervasive. It's like in every single area of our personal finances. So when we're thinking about our income, there's the wage gaps. When we're thinking about debt, there's higher interest rates for women who have the same exact credit profile as a man or a couple. There's less options and less opportunity to invest in 401ks through our jobs as as women and even more so as women of color because they're usually offered to full-time employees in certain positions. So it just was like everywhere (laughs) and over and over. So And when you earn less, right, then you typically have to take out more debt. And women actually are charged a pink tax. So the things, identical things cost us more money. So earning less, having to spend more higher interest rates when we're taking out debt, like it goes on and on. Um, so I think you can you can kind of assume that they're everywhere. And I think under there's big changes that, that would that need to happen that are but understanding and getting personal finance advice from people who understand the nuance of a situation of being a woman or being a woman of color or having a disability, I think can be really impactful because the the information is different. Yeah. I had a friend uh, recently write me and she said, hey, you were talking about how, she said, actually like, hey, on your podcast, you were talking about how you have your, a thing set up for your children. It's like an educational thing. And I was like, oh, like 529s. She's like, yeah, how do I set one up? I Googled it and I am overloaded with information and I don't even know how to set it up. And I was like, it is so easy. And I sent her one link for her state. And I said, just follow these directions. And then she messaged me back like half an hour later. She was like, that was so incredibly easy. But she was so overwhelmed with all of the information that she was trying to search. And she was like, wait, every state has a different one. Every like, how do I set one up? Like, this is really confusing. And then she just was like, never mind, I'm not going to do it. And then she wrote me back and was just like, can you help me? So I can imagine that you go and you try to figure it out on your own and you like, you're just reading all of this jargon and it's overwhelming. Um, so I think it's kind of interesting, like you're talking about women of color and some systemic barriers that we're planning for. Like, what are some other, like, why is it important to consider personal and systemic barriers um, as we're planning for the futures and like setting these financial goals? So just back to your point on how you were able to help the friend, I think Understanding personal finance for ourselves is more than important enough, but that's a beautiful thing about once we understand is we lift up and impact the people around us because they can come to us, even if we don't have all the answers, just saying, hey, have you put together a budget? This is what mine looks like. I don't think it's perfect, but you know, we, what does yours look like? And having these conversations or have you opened up the 401k? I found through my community interviewing people that there's usually someone in someone's life who kind of gave them a nudge to open the 401k, to have a budget, to share what they're earning. And so we kind of lift each other up as we're learning and cutting through all the noise and the chaos. So I think that's really great. Um, As far as why it's important to understand the barriers, I think in the personal finance space and in the education, there's just been so much pretending that we're all starting from the same place. And 
And it's just like this, it's almost like an unspoken pretending (laughs) and it's, people are over it. Like we're not. And it can be, it's a ton of little things and it doesn't make your success if you do not encounter those barriers less. It's just important to understand that if, you know, if someone had college paid for, they are not paying off student loans as one of their debts. Or if they had grad school paid for, and then that, that's another thing. And then if you have a wage gap because you're a woman, and then it's even smaller because you're a black woman or because you're a mother, you know, mothers are paid even less than non-women with no children. So um, it's just important for goal setting because that those are the actual numbers. And it's important so that we're not comparing ourselves with others, having some compassion And um, because I do think social media, the internet have made it really easy to compare ourselves and like, why am I not ready for retirement at 35, you know, and, oh, maybe it's because I earned this or I started off with this debt or I made these mistakes because I didn't know about this. So I think it's important part of the conversation also so that the systems can change too. I think it's, it's important for every reason. (laughs) Yeah, that's a good call out. And it's very true. I think it's easy to stay in your tunnel vision and assume that everyone starts from the same place that you started in um, or sometimes maybe better or worse. But like, I think that there is some denial of like, I, not me, because my college wasn't paid for uh, by my parents, but it was paid for because I was an athlete. And so when I graduated college, I didn't have any student debt. And I recognize that that was a gift that I worked hard for, but still I was starting off with like banking in my job, like everything was savings ultimately because I didn't have to pay those student loans. They didn't exist. Um, where a lot of people didn't have that that gift or benefit of. So And it's a beautiful thing like that. I think as parents, what you see is like, that is what I want to give to my kids, right? So it's a great thing. It's just not hiding that it existed and pretending that it was the same. So I think it still should be celebrated. And I'm so like, my college was paid for and I'm so grateful and that's something I want to do. But so I don't think it's, I think it's sometimes goes the other way that it gets vilified, but I think it's because there's so much anger around the pretending. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. So I have an interesting question for you with everything going on with Roe versus Wade. From a financial perspective, what are the financial implications um, that arise for women with this overturning of Roe versus Wade? Yes, there are huge implications. We could do a whole podcast on it. But I would say some of the the highlights, uh, or should I say lowlights, it comes with, so having a child in the US and thinking about the overturning, it's a child that you didn't, you weren't going to have, comes with high medical bills just for, you know, for the child itself. Not to mention there's high mortality rates in the US, which are triple for black women. There's no mandated paid leave here. Um, So a stat that I found just atrocious is that one in four mothers goes back to work within two weeks. And just knowing how I was two weeks postpartum, I can't even imagine um, there's super high childcare costs. It's challenging even with like dual significant incomes. There's no paid sick leave if your kids get sick. So those are these are all costs. Um, the federal minimum wage is $7.25. So you're adding another person to care for. And 80% of people earning minimum wage are 
are adults, two thirds are women, and 25% are women of color. So I think it goes on and on. Like we talked about, there's pay gaps, there's higher interest rates. So all of these parts of our finances are impacted as women. Um, there's the motherhood penalty. So women who have children automatically are, are paying or paid 30% less. And then you're adding this new expense on top of, on top of that. Yeah. So, um, I, my deductible is like $1,500. So for me to have a vaginal birth is $1,500, which like, I still think that's kind of costly, like $1,500, you know, you pay all this money for insurance. But what I did some research, and I was like, what is the average, the average cost with a high deductible health plan, um, you know, could be between five and $9,000 just to give birth. And you're, you're, you're in the, and that's vaginal, like C-section. I don't know. I didn't search that, but I, I would assume it'd probably be higher because you're in the hospital for much longer. And then, then I started going to this rabbit hole and I was like, okay, what is the average it costs for child-related expenses each year? Um, and I, th- I think it was between like twelve and $15,000 a year for child-related expenses. But the, I, I remember reading that for newborns, that cost is much higher because if you have to, let's say, I don't know, buy formula and all the diapers and and all of the check-ins and all of the hospital visit or the doctor visits and everything, it it was like between like fifteen and twenty thousand dollars a year. To your point, it if you're also adding that thirty percent difference, we're talking significant financial implications for somebody who may be making an average of $55,000 a year, which just blew my mind to think about that because I just never really sat down and did that math and and tried to have, you know, the perspective from somebody who's making 55K, 60K a year and also having to go back to work in two weeks, even if they've had a C-section. Like, because right. like in Texas, for example... You get zero, zero paid maternity leave unless your employer gives it to you. I know New York is a little bit different. They get 12 weeks and I think it's at like 66 or 67 or something percent of your salary and it's maxed out at a certain number, which, you know, it's better than nothing. But just to think about that as a whole where it's like you, you know, we're overturning Roe versus Wade, but then there's nothing that's going to help to support at at the other side of it when you actually have the life, the baby, and you have to then do all of these things for it. And I think to me, I'm having a hard time wrapping my head around the logic behind all of that. Yeah. And how that is pro-life is very... Interesting. Also, too, to your point about your deductible, I think it's within 30 days, like your child gets added and your deductible is now a family. So then the next time, (laughs) right, ours doubled when we added our family, added a a person to it. So now that 1500 deductible is 3000 for the next year. And so that's like what you can plan for if anything should go wrong, even if if you're finding an in-network everything. Yeah. And that's accurate. 
um, it does double because it's like family member with me. I'm the one having the baby. But now next year or when she cut like now that she's here, it's like now it's three thousand um, for next year. And three thousand dollars is a lot of money, you know, and mm-hmm. I'm fortunate where I can afford that. But still, like three thousand dollars is a lot of money, even for me. <laughs> Right, And I can't imagine for somebody who may be going paycheck to paycheck and God forbid something happens. And now what do they do? They have to take a loan out to pay their deductible. Like it's just mind boggling. So. Right. As yes. And I think about this a lot, how difficult, especially in the pandemic, it has been to have kids when I wanted them and I have like all these different privileges and financial means lined up and it's still so, so challenging. And so it just, I can't, it's, it's just, yes, like you said, mind boggling. So what are some strategies that women can do to help enable to take care of themselves and their financial situations? So I'd mentioned money parties, which are one of my favorites. Also the whole thing of financial adulting, taking these small steps. So that's something that I definitely encourage. And that could mean, I think there's this tendency to kind of poo-poo small steps, but break anything that seems too big down until it feels manageable. Because when it doesn't mean that if, let's say, the first step to you, you're like, Ashley, there's no way I can save. I'm going to save $5 every month. That's great. And that doesn't mean it's going to take you a thousand years to save on for a home, right? It's our financial progress can be exponential as we build these habits, as we learn. So I definitely recommend breaking things in small steps. Some other things, just getting conscious of where our money is going. If it feels like when we were talking about technology and the little expenses, I'm a huge fan of keeping a money journal, just writing down or typing out what we're spending, looking at it, because so much of it can be on auto drive or what we think we should be doing or what other people are doing. We we mentioned getting started with investing. So because of the amount of information, I do recommend finding money mentors or personal finance experts you resonate with. It could be one, it could be a few, but tuning into the information that is important to you and that will help you and kind of giving ourselves permission to not listen to all of it and need to understand all of it because there is so much information out there that it can create this analysis paralysis and keep us from taking action. So I'm a big fan of, for example, we can talk about these two sinking funds are an account that I think are so important and helpful. What they are is for larger irregular expenses to put money aside every paycheck or every month in order to sink. <laughs> like if we plan on taking a trip or we have multiple trips in the year to have a travel fund that we put in money every single month and paycheck so that the money is there waiting when it's time to take the trip. And we don't have to pull from savings. We don't have to put it on a credit card. And the same people love it for like camp, tuition, vet bills, medical bills, the holidays. Like there's so many reasons to put together a sinking fund. But for example, to open one, I'm a fan of having a high yield savings account or an online savings account. And you could read about it for like months. So I recommend setting a timer, right? 30 minutes. Here's what my favorite experts are saying. Okay, I'm going to go ahead and open it. So really focusing on educated action, but staying away from the analysis paralysis. I like that. 
Those are some good tips. Something that I do, take my advice with a grain of salt. You know, I'm not a <laughs> investment person, but something that I do, and this is like a little bit of like saving mind trickery. We have F, we have an FSA and an HSA, and we don't do any claims throughout the year until the end of the year. And what happens is I think my FSA is like 5K and my HSA is like what, 2,500 or maybe even went up to 3,500. I don't, I don't know exactly. But what happens is we don't do any claims until the end of the year. And then we claim, we, we submit all of our claims. And then it's a kind of a way for me to say, don't touch this money. This is our savings. You know, we're paying for the childcare, we're paying for the health stuff. And at the end of the year, we'll put all of our claims in and then we'll get between five and $8,000 at the end of the year. And so it's a way to kind of trick yourself into saving. And then we get to decide, okay, what is that eight? How are we going to use that 8K? Do we have to do a home maintenance? Do we do a family vacation? So that's one thing that I did in the beginning of my saving because it was it was like a little mind trick for me versus seeing the 8K build up in a savings account and you're constantly looking at that and you think that it's actually available and that you're just like, well, we can just pull from the savings, you know? So I'm a big fan of mind trickery. And I think too, so it sounds like you were able to, eat or or absorb those medical costs the fs the childcare costs in your in your totally. annual earning so that it was able to be at the end i think that's great and in if for those who want another way to kind of separate savings so that feels less available is to have a completely separate account because i am with you i think there's a few unicorns out there who can like keep their checking and savings together and keep money in it but most of us when we log in it just feels available it feels like it's ours to use versus completely separated. So it's you're you're creating a system where you're keeping yourself from spending that savings. Yeah, the other the other mind trickery that we do is uh we put up we do have two separate accounts with two different like like bank like bank accounts and the all of our expenses come out of one, but what we do is like per, a percentage of our um, salary will go into another account that we just don't see very much. And so maybe it's like 10%. And so we just say like, we only can use what goes into this account to pay for these bills. And that other account is sort of hidden, but every paycheck, 10% will go into that account and then the rest will come into this other one. And that's just another way of, um, not allowing for everything to go into one and then you have to manually move it over because then it's really hard to do that because you're like, uh, well, maybe we can go to a really nice sushi dinner because we have extra money. You know, it's it's sort of like having these little habits to enable easy saving. So that's like another thing that we do. Can you think of any other like tips like that for people? Because I feel like those are easy to implement, at least at first. Yes, I call that. So what you're doing with the separate account, I call that paying yourself yeah. first versus, and I found it's really hard to have money come in and then you live your life and then wait to see what's left over. There's usually not anything left over. So having it separate from 
right when your paycheck comes in or having it transfer automatically. I think another way to do it. So some, some companies will allow you to transfer your paycheck as many places as you want, which is great. So you could do something like you've set up in the case where they don't, or you're not sure how much and you want to change it a lot. You could set up an automatic transfer which it almost feels like a bill. That's true. That's a good point. And so there's a very, and there's also apps. I think it, there's mindset shifts around being able to save and the apps that kind of steal money from yeah, you to that save. Like round up. <laughs> yes. Those type of things are like, they know you're spending and if you skip something, they take it. I think that can be helpful It to almost like open our minds to the possibility that I can do this. But of course, once you start automating or you know how much you want to save, it kind of can get confusing when an app is also taking money and you're not sure where it is all going. So I think anywhere we can automate, pay ourselves first is really helpful. Um, I think to the point of like what's available in our bank account, I go back to the sinking fund because if I have a month where there's a lot of extra cash, it might feel like that's money that's available for me to do the sushi dinner or to put towards my debt, right? But it's actually money that I haven't set aside for the bachelorette that I'm going to or to the wedding or to my dog's annual vet bill or if you have an annual HOA, whatever it is, these big things, when we budget weekly or monthly, we miss out on them. And so it feels like we have extra money, but we really don't. And it can feel, even if we're saving that extra money, it can feel like the hamster wheel, like taking a few steps forward. I saved a bunch. Oh, I forgot about this big expense. Now I'm taking it all out. It just feels a little more futile and it's not clear what we're actually saving. So I think that can be a really big one is just setting aside money year round. So instead of a $1,000 bill for the holidays in November, December, I'm putting aside $43 every two weeks. Like that feels very different and a lot more manageable, less painful. Other tricks like that, automating is a big one. I think the other is like reframing how we think about budgeting. And I think we often think of it as this restricting thing, almost like, you know, diet when you keep your diet journal. But the cool part is I find if we don't have a plan and we don't know how much we're spending, anything we spend for fun can feel guilty. Like, I don't know if it's taking away from my goals. I don't know if I can actually afford to do this. And so one of the really cool things, if the funds are available, is to be able to build in the treats, the things you want, and to know that they work. Like, cool. We, like, for in your case, like, we have this 8,000. This is, like, for an improvement in our home, for some a goal we want, for a vacation, whatever it is. I think it doesn't have to be about deprivation, even if we want to, even if we don't have a lot of extra funds for fun things. I'm a fan of frugal joys, which are free or inexpensive things that make us happy. So we can always build those in as ways to just treat ourselves and really enjoy things um, rather than viewing all this personal finance stuff as very restricting. Yeah, I think that's a good tip. Something that we do is part of our budget is like funny money. And so my husband and I both get like monthly funny money, you know, and it's like you can do what you want with it. If you want to go to Home Depot and spend it all on wood, like that's what you can do, which he does. And or if I want to go and get my like funny, like crazy nails done, then that's what I can do. Or you can save it and every month you can put it aside. And then if you want to do like a big purchase in two or three months, um, then use the money. But it, it just allows to not have the guilt of like, 
oh, so you got to spend X dollars this month to go get your hair and nails done and I get nothing. Like, so it's like, nope, just take it from your funny money, like do what you want. And I think having that um, little bucket avoids the fighting or like the bickering of like, yes, how come you get that? And I don't get that, you know? So it also, I think helps with the judgment because in relationships, we value different things, right? And like, I'm an experienced person. My husband's a things person. And I'm like, oh, I don't want another thing in our apartment. And he's like, I can't believe you spent on something you don't get to hold, right? And so I think having those amounts that are judgment-free, as long as you stay within them, you're free to do it, can help with the judgment and the, yeah, like the the, the negative emotions around um yeah, like the resentment. It's like, it's my money. I get to do what I want with it. Like, who cares? You get yours, I get mine. <laughs> right. As long as I don't go out of it and it doesn't affect our goals, it doesn't matter what it was for. Totally. And the, I think that's probably the biggest thing for people who could bicker and fight about that. It's like, it's literally funny money. It's You can do what you want. If you want to go put it in crypto, then you put it in crypto. Like You do what you want with it. So what are some tips and strategies you have for women who are in good financial position and are able and willing to help lift others? Like, what are, what's some advice? I I love what you said previously about like, talk, be open, be transparent. What are other things that we can do as women to help our peers? Yeah. And I think assuming you know more than you think is a really good place to start because even when you like you're sharing so many incredible tips that you're implementing in your own home that would be so helpful for others and you mentioned you know I'm not an an investment expert right and but I think that we tend to downplay what we know even if it's working and it will help other people so but you could also if that ever feels like something you want to share like hey I'm not an expert but this is what I'm doing and it works really great um I think talking about it sharing just imagining like the people who gave us those nudges, how we can be that for other people. And it can be with coworkers, friends, family. Um, I love like <laughs> my sister will forward me her 401k information and I'm like, here. And I set her up, you know, 10%. She was like, I can't believe I saved this much. So I, tr- I trick my family into, into investing sometimes. But um, yeah, so being that person and just, I think, being open, talking are great tips for that. We don't have to have it all figured out to help others. And even if we are, I think too, in a like going forward towards our goals, life changes, things change. We want to still be having those money parties. Also in relation to having a partner, I think money parties are are great too, if especially if money is stressful because it compartmentalizes the conversation and you can really set the stage or the tone for this being compassionate, not judgmental, like instead of, hey, why is the Amex so high or whatever, like those in the moments saying, oh, we'll just talk about it at the money party, you know? And so then you can say, this is going to be, we're going to not bicker, we won't yell, we're just going to talk about this. Um, So I do think the practices that got us to a good financial position are the ones that can keep us there over time. Yeah, I love that. If you could give anyone listening just one piece of advice from this episode, what would it be? It would be to take action. So in the next like two days, three days, if there was something that resonated with you from this conversation, like, oh, I've been meaning to do that or I want to do that, I um, write that down, take that action. And saying we're going to do something 
makes there, I think, a 60% chance. So telling someone else that we're going to do something makes it more likely, 60% chance that we'll actually follow through. So you can have, it doesn't have to mean like you tell them how much you're saving or how much debt you have or how much you're earning if that feels daunting, but sharing with one person that you're going to take that action. And then if they actually follow up to check in, if you did it, there's like a 90 something percent chance that you take the action. So accountability can be really valuable. And you've just started a conversation with a friend about money. It's a win-win. I love that. Well, Ashley, thank you so much for being here with us today. You are one badass basic bitch. Can you tell everyone where they can find you? Yes, you can find me on all the socials at The Fiscal Femme and the website, thefiscalfemme.com. And if you're interested in the book, Financial Adulting, it's at financialadultingbook.com. Awesome. Thanks for being here with us today. Thanks so much for having me. As always, thank you for listening. Check us out on Instagram at Badass Basic Bitch. And thank you to Saw and Sign, our production studio. We'll see you next week.